For Inside Carolina, I'm Taylor Vipolis, and you're listening to this podcast, which is a part of the Inside Carolina Podcast Network. So first off, thank you for being here. If you haven't already, be sure you subscribe or follow Inside Carolina wherever you get your podcast or on YouTube so you never miss out on any of the content the team at IC puts out. It helps us out a ton and hardly takes any time. Speaking of support, we want to support the people that support us. So that's why on this podcast, I have to remind everyone about Jimmy's Famous Seafood. The reason they wanted to sponsor this podcast is simple. They're owned and operated by Carolina fans. So not only do you get great seafood at a great price, but you're also supporting one of your own. It's a true win-win. For everybody wondering, my go-to order is the Famous Gift Box where you get two massive crab cakes, two kinds of crab soup, and a half pint of crab dip. Visit them online at jimmysfamousseafood.com and at checkout, use the promo code hashtag GDTBATH for free two-day shipping. That's promo code hashtag GDTBATH. All right, joining me, as always, it's fellow letterman Mike Ingersoll and EJ Wilson. Guys, I ended last week's podcast saying that I couldn't wait to break down the season opener, and it, it turns out I lied because, my word, that was brutal with UNC losing 17-10 to 10 in Blacksburg to Virginia Tech. So let's get right into it. Mike, start us out. What were your biggest takeaways from the game? I mean, we've – it's not – it's not a end of the world. It's not the sky is falling. It's recalibrating expectations. And it's – you know, I, I was talking to you guys before we – started the pod here. I didn't do the preseason prediction pod because I didn't feel like dealing with the blowback online from my eight and four prediction and how everyone was going to get mad at me and yell at me and tell me I didn't know what I was talking about. And Mike sucked when he played anyway. And all of that might be true, you know, respectfully disagree, but I call it an eight and four season. And I don't think that's because we don't have talent. I don't think it's because we can't produce. And I don't think it's because this coaching staff hasn't done a great job. I think it's because we have a horrible October and Virginia Tech Lane Stadium with a packed house, first fans that are going to be there in a year, particularly given that that community, all they have is Virginia Tech football. Lane Stadium rocking on primetime, first game of the year when they've had three weeks to prepare for you is not the environment you want to open up with when you've got a new receiving core and, and new players at key positions. It's just not what you want to – it's not how you want to open up. I don't think Virginia Tech is a great team, and I don't think they're going to win more than seven or eight games either. I think it's going to come down to the wire between us, Miami, and Virginia Tech for the Coastal. And unfortunately, I think this game might end up being the decision maker for us in terms of the ACC championship game. So my key takeaways from this game specifically, that's my holistic picture. And we can get more into that, you know, as, as, as we go through the pod today. But my, my game-specific assessment is fatigue in games one and two is always much more egregious than it is beginning game three and on because it takes about a game or two to get into, quote, game shape. And that showed up. You see that in every single game that was played this weekend, whether it was up in Wisconsin or if it was down in Florida, guys cramping, um, you know, come second quarter, guys falling out. And that's just because your adrenaline's high and, you know, you wear yourself out and you drain your body very quickly in games one and two until your body gets into, quote, game shape. There's camp shape, practice shape and game shape. And after about week two, you get into game shape. Fatigue ended up affecting us, particularly on the offensive line. 
it's, you know, it affected us late in the game. Um, the other key takeaway and VIP, you can talk more about this because this is your bread and butter. Uh, we have a hard time right now, aside from Josh Downs, but even Josh Downs to an extent, getting separation on the outside with our receivers. And without that separation, Phil Longo's offense looks a whole lot different. It looks like more, it looks a whole lot more like a 25 yard box. And if you can contain an entire offense to a 25 by 53 yard box, it's a little, it, it's, it's a much different animal than when you've got De'Ami Brown on the outside blowing the lid off of the defense. And you always have to account for that. No matter who you have at quarterback, no matter who is at quarterback and don't get me. I think Sam Howell looked pretty good, but what I will say is key takeaway number three, because of that inexperience at the receivers at, you know, with the receiving core and at some of those key positions, Sam held the ball a little longer, which we know Sam has a tendency to do. And he'll get over it this season. This, this, was, this was a game one thing. And as he gets more com- comfortable with these receivers, he'll get rid of that and he'll work his way through it. But for this game specifically, he held the ball a little long. So there's a lot of blame going on the offensive line. And the offensive line is not without blame here. But a lot of those sacks, a lot of those hits and those hurries um, were the result of holding the ball a little longer because Sam – you know, either number one, wasn't seeing the separation he needed to see from his receivers or number two, just didn't trust them to get that separation and didn't trust them um, to be there when he put the ball where it needed to go. So because of that, he held the ball a little longer. Pass protection had to take a little bit longer and be held a little longer. And when that happens against a division one defense, their secondary and their third moves are going to get, they're going to get home eventually. EJ can tell you that every defense alignment has a primary move and then a secondary move when that primary move fails. And, you know, first and second moves failed. They got a third one. And if you get to the point where you're giving a guy a third chance at a pass rush move, he's going to get home. That's just the way it works. And we're talking like second to five, six, six and a half. At that point, someone's hitting the quarterback. And we saw a lot of that against tech. So those are my three key takeaways. Um, you know, hopefully we, we work through them and we find a guy that can take the lid off of the defense. Cause without that, this offense is going to be severely limited. And, and that is a recipe for, mediocrity this season it's 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 a bowl it's a bowl recipe we'll make a bowl game (laughs) i don't know that we make the acc championship game i don't know that we win more than eight games unless we can find a guy who can take the top off of the defense and spread that offense out make it more uh, make it less predictable i should say ej what about you what did you see maybe looking at the the big picture for this team and then looking at the defense specifically i guess Big picture for this team, um, we aren't who we're advertised to be, which I mean, which I tell anybody, which I've said on this pod, I don't think I don't think we're a number 10 team. I think that a lot of the people who rank us there were kind of feeding off the energy of Coach Brown being back and some of the great recruiting classes that we have. And the fact that we do, no matter what happened on uh, Friday night, we still do have a Heisman caliber uh, quarterback. So I do think that we aren't where we were ranked. I agree with Mike. And I mean, we we talk about this all the time. I mean, I think 17 to 20 is where we're supposed to be, but specifically talking about this game, it's kind of tough to see all of like a microcosm of everything and all the mistakes that we saw last year, the missed tackles, the bad eye discipline, the not sticking to your assignments, the not being physical, the just not playing the brand of football that's one been advertised, but look at you, if you kind of go down and look at our defensive roster, some of the talent and some of the speed that we have there, some of this stuff shouldn't be happening. And the fact that so many last year, we're talking about our depth and how so many people had to play 
there's no carryover from last season. Yeah, we get better defensively from game to game in the season, but the mark of a championship program is taking everything you learned in that prior season and shifting that to the next season. Because, I mean, you can't, you can't have that hangover in the first game where you're, you're kind of reverting back to your old things. The adre- like Mike said, the adrenaline's high. The emotions are high. You're, you're not necessarily in game shape. So a lot of these guys are reverting back to old to, to the, some of their old things. And I think a lot of players that we're really counting on to have big years this year really didn't show up for us on Saturday. I mean, there's no Chaz Surratt out there right now that, that, that can athletically over overcompensate for a lot of the mistakes that are going on around on defense. So I think now it needs to be more concerted uh, defensive effort. But I really was disappointed by what I saw in the first half. Uh, second half, completely different team but why, why can't we be that team in the beginning so that's why I say that we are we we aren't what we're advertised to be I don't think that we're playing championship football because we're not taking our lessons from last season carrying them over to this season and instead of saying okay we, we want to get better and we want to get better and like at the, end, at the end of the day from where we're started and if we progress like we have any other season we're just going to be the same defense that played in um that played in the Orange Bowl last year but hey guess what? If there's no carryover, that's still not championship football. So I do think that's the next level in our program, both offensively and defensively. Take the lessons that we learned in the previous seasons and some of the things that are our weaknesses and try to make them in the strings. Yeah, I wasn't shocked that Carolina lost to Virginia Tech, all things considered. First game in Lane Stadium, hostile environment. Virginia Tech is still a, a competent football team, but I was shocked with how non-competitive Carolina looked, especially along the offense. It it's a team that brings everybody back from that Orange Bowl, essentially, and they they just didn't look like the same team at all. And I think big picture, this was a chance for Carolina to flip the narrative and show the world that they're ready for prime time, they're ready for the accolades and everything that kind of comes along with big time football. And I think everyone from from the fans to the letterman to alumni has every right to be upset and disheartened to a certain extent, because since the Orange Bowl, we've all been sold this dream that this this team was ready to make that next leap and they were ready to close the gap on Clemson. And the team we saw on Friday in Blacksburg, they have a lot more questions than they do answers. But that game, that game, it, it certainly popped the balloon for any of that excitement and the unprecedented levels of hype because we saw the same old, same old where when the lights are at their brightest, Carolina football just isn't ready for the moment. It, a team comes out, a team punches them in the mouth. They set the tone with physicality and UNC just can't match it. So from that perspective, it was a demoralizing loss, especially like, like you mentioned, Mike, Virginia Tech is about as average a football team as you could go up against. And they ran um, all over us. And that's when I saw that starting to happen on drive one, and I saw mm-hmm. Virginia Tech controlling the game on the ground. This is the, the if you want to if you want to be able if you want to have the the crystal ball prediction on Twitter. You want to be the you want to be the guy that predicts the game, no matter what game you're watching. Okay, you want to be the guy that predicts the game in the first quarter after the first or second drive. Pick the team that is literally running the ball at will all over the other team, and that is going mm-hmm. to be the team that wins the game. This is the Georgia Tech model. If you run the ball all over the other team, you've got, from a, from a mathematics standpoint, you've got clock control. Okay, you're going to run the clock out. 
from a conditioning standpoint, this is man to man. Okay. You're going to have a, you're, you're going to have a fatigue advantage because you're going to wear that defense down. And now you want to get into the philosophy of it all. You've got a psychological advantage because you are imparting your will. This is the, this is the traditional macho football uh, philosophy, which is absolutely true. This is the toxic masculinity <laughs> of football. That is 100% true at all times and will forever be true as long as football exists. If you are mm-hmm. running the ball all over somebody at will, you are going to win that football game. Football is very simple. It is one man taking another man and moving him against his will. And if you are able to impart that will on another man for the course of 48 or 60 minutes or whatever it might be, all right, or even just one drive or two drives consecutively, you're going to break that person's will. And if you mm-hmm. can break their will, you're going to break the game open. And that's exactly what happens. So if you want to be the crystal ball Twitter, um, you know, uh, you know Miss Chloe, okay, you'll be Miss Chloe on Twitter when it comes to predicting games. Pick the team that's running all over somebody. And Tech showed that. And when I saw that after the second drive, I give the – First game of the year, I give you the first drive. Okay, it's a jitters. You don't know what's going to happen. It's unpredictable. But after the second drive, if you're still making the same mistakes, you're getting ran all over, okay, and on offense, you're not moving the ball at all. You're getting ran through on offense. Game's over. And I had a real bad feeling in the pit of my stomach after drive two. I was just going to say the same thing. From talking to people around the program, my level of confidence going into Lane Stadium, a 13 out of 10. I I didn't think Virginia Tech – I, I honestly thought Car- – I'll be the first one to admit that I thought Carolina was going to be able to kind of impose their will against Virginia Tech. Um, but after after that second drive where they got bailed out by a Trey Morrison interception inside the red zone, I, I could tell early that Carolina was going to be in trouble. But, Mike, you, you mentioned the offensive line up and down, going from position to position. Um, I think a lot of people – are a bit surprised with how the offensive line played, given that a lot of people had them being like a top 15 offensive line in the country with how much experience and how many starts they were bringing back as someone who's played the position knows what they're looking for along the line. What did you make of their performances? And when, when things did go wrong, what kind of happened there? I mean, first thing I want to say is I think they can be a top 15 or top 20 offensive line. I think they've got the size and they've got the talent and they've got the experience to do that. And I don't, I didn't see anything. This might be surprising to folks and they're going to say, well, Mike's just biased because he played, but I don't, I didn't see anything on Friday that makes me think otherwise. I didn't see anything on Friday that makes me say, nah, this isn't a top 15 or 20 offensive line. Things are going to be rough first game of the year. And if you've got a team like Virginia tech and it's not a Bud Foster defense, but it's still division one football players. And you give that coaching staff, a program that has some pride and a program that has a lot of talent and guys on the other side of the ball that are just as athletic and just as talented as you. A lot of them were choosing between us and tech as the final two, right? Dax Hollifield, several others. You give those guys two or three weeks to prepare for you. They're going to have something for you. They're going to get home. They're going to figure something out. Um, where I saw a struggle was the same thing that I've been harping on for two years now, which is twists and games and not coming off in your assignments and having your head up and in, 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 um, in blitz pickup. Okay. Not seeing tight blitzers. All right. So guys that are scraping tight to, you know, linebackers scraping tight to defensive linemen's hips on, on blitzes, basic stuff. I and mean, I'm talking like, I'm talking single blitzes. So like one man blitzes getting home. Um, the other issue I saw was bad footwork. So when we are running our, 
play action passes out of that, out of that shotgun formation, when we're running play action out of that, you know, say we're running, you know, a, a play action off of a power, you know, or a gap scheme. And we got back blocks from the center, the center taking bad steps. He snaps the ball and he's stepping forward instead of getting some depth. And now he's got backside defensive end slicing underneath and he's getting in Sam Howell's face and he's disrupting the whole play and he's speeding everything up and he's messing it up. And that's, that is, that's game one stuff. Okay. You're not playing the Citadel. You're not playing James Madison. You're not playing Georgia state game one. You're playing Virginia tech. Okay. So your stuff's gotta be a lot more crisp than it would be against an opponent like that. You don't have the opportunity to tune up that way, but I like big time opponents in game one from a tune-up perspective, because it forces you to come to Jesus real fast. It forces you to get better real quick in real time, which then makes you better for the rest of the season. So I like these big time matchups. I like conference games as the first game of the season. They make me a little, you know, I'm a, I'm a little leery of them, but this isn't the kind of team Carolina that is that shouldn't be able to come out and beat a team like Virginia tech, even though it's a rivalry, even though it's a sold out stadium. Okay. But from an offensive line perspective, you got to do better in adjusting on the fly and cleaning up some of those mistakes real quick against a, against a team like this. If you're going to treat it like a Citadel and you're going to be a little sloppy on your technique, they're going to beat you. And that's what, that's what we saw happen. But it, I, I, I want to go ahead and emphasize that though it is easy to jump on the offensive line because you saw a bunch of sacks and a bunch of quarterback pressures, I would be hesitant to do that unless you know exactly what you're looking at. There was a lot of holding the ball too long from the quarterback. There was situational football, um, and I'm not going to blame Longo for this, but there were certain things. They just Virginia Tech had a better defense. They had a better scheme dialed up than we had a play called. Okay. That happened. They just, they game planned it better in certain situations than we did. So our, our, our protection scheme, or if we're running play action, play action pass, the run scheme that we were running the play action pass off of wasn't the right call for the situation based on what they were bringing, which isn't a longo problem. It's just a, they did a better job than we did issue. Okay. So a lot of that stuff isn't on the offensive line, but there are certain things like, on a single blitz, letting a guy run through that's on the offensive line, getting blown up right up the middle on a basic twist. That's on the offensive line, taking a bad step on your back block. If you're the center and you're running play action pass off of a gap scheme run plays like 36 power or something like that. That's on the offensive line. And there were several, there were several instances of that, but again, not all of the quarterback hits and the pressures and the disruption that we saw was because of the offensive line, but some of the big stuff was some of the big, huge sacks, you know, taking us out of field or range, that kind of stuff. Some of that stuff was on the offensive line and that's got to get cleaned up fast because Carolina's this, this is the reality for this season. You now got to run the table. You're going to be in the top 25 by the grace of God. They should be number 25. I think they should be unranked. But you're going to be number 25. You now got to run the table to have a shot at the Coastal because Miami's coming for you. I don't care what they look, at, look like against Alabama. They're going to be a whole lot better by the time you get them in October. Florida State right now is playing Notre Dame, and they look pretty good. Okay? And they're going to be a whole lot better by the time you get them. Duke, State, they're all going to be better by the time you get them. So you lost this game. Bronco Mendenhall in Virginia, they've been a problem for the last couple of years. You're going to have to get Virginia. So Carolina's got to run the table to have a shot at the ACC championship game and meet some of those expectations that they had and just hope that this doesn't go down as 
the worst loss in Carolina football history, which is what I still call the South Carolina loss in 2015. This is the worst <laughs> loss in Carolina football history. Uh, Mike, quick follow-up there. According to uh, Pro Football Focus, I saw that uh, – let me get the stat. 276 offensive linemen played at least 48 snaps in week one. Josh Azudu graded out as the 12th best. Jordan Tucker, the 28th. Marcus McKeithen, 85th. Kieran Johnson, 248th. Awesome Richards, 263rd out of the 276 eligible players. You mentioned it's hard to properly grade out the offensive line without knowing calls, but does that at least match up with your eye test where Azudu and Tucker, they're turning in great performances, good to great performances, and then you have a significant drop-off? You know a guy is in control of his man when he can pass protect when he can pass protect with one hand. EJ knows EJ knows this. If you can if you can block a defensive end in pass protection with your trail hand, that's your inside hand. So if you're the left tackle, it's your right hand, and you can control a guy with just your right hand because your feet and your hips are so good. Okay, you're having a pretty good game. I saw Josh Azudu do that consistently throughout the game. Okay, Jordan Tucker looked consistently good throughout the game. Q at the center spot had some struggles. Um, I think Brian Anderson's a better option there, but I think Q has enough experience where there shouldn't have been that kind of drop off and we shouldn't have seen those sort of issues from the middle. And we saw them. And like I've been harping on for the last few years, our inside three, particularly passing off twists between our center and our guards has been a problem. And we've had guys getting coming free right up the middle and that's been a problem. So those grades you just read off, you know, I, they're harsh, but they're also objective. And if that's what they're grading out at objectively, what that tells me is whether, you know, whether they're right or wrong by 10 or 15 ranking spots is sort of irrelevant. What it tells me is comparatively, there's a lot of work to do on the inside. Yeah. Yeah. We'll get back to talking about the offensive line in a second. I have a couple more follow-up questions. I want to make sure EJ knows that I didn't forget about him. EJ, the defense was a tale of two halves. They really put themselves behind the eight ball with how disorganized they looked early on. It was a bit of everything, blown coverages, uh, losing contain. The first drive, Virginia Tech, any one of us could have walked in that touchdown that Burmeister had uh, with, with the combination of getting gapped and then the secondary scrambling to get set. Second drive, they get bailed out by the Trey Morrison fumble that I mentioned earlier inside the red zone. Third drive, they give up the third and 13 and then the third and 11 where they rush just three. They couldn't cover with eight people and the back line of the end zone as uh, as the extra defender. Were you surprised at all by the start? And did you see anything that led to some of those struggles? Oh, no, I was, I was absolutely shocked by the way the defense performed in the first half. It really looked like a team that was kind of um, a team that we saw uh, towards the middle of the season last year with some of the complaints that we were making. I mean, it's disheartening to, to have our preseason pie last week and all the hype they were hearing about, oh, these guys played in the Orange Bowl and because of our injuries, we've had so many people getting experience. But, yeah, you have people getting experience, but – are they translating that experience? We have all this depth on defensive line, on the defensive line, but I think that's I think that's a misquote. I think we have bodies on the defensive line. Do we have a lot of good depth? I don't think so. I think outside of uh, Ravel Hasek, and this is going to be a, a very harsh um, analysis. I think outside of Ravel Hasek, uh, Javari Ritzy, and a couple other guys, I mean, I really don't see any guys that are really living up to that expectation. Ray was consistently knocking guys back, playing in the backfield. He was the attitude. Any of those from 
those scrums or, or, or getting touchy that the announcers were talking about, he usually was right in the middle of it. And that's what you want to see from a nose guard. You want to see a guy that's going to be right in the middle of the, of the action and making things happen. But, I mean, we were catching up front. We saw the, the quarterback runs coming back to haunt us again. We had a couple of linebackers, particularly Eugene Asante, who looks like, I don't know what he was watching, if he was looking at the, the big jumbotron behind the field, but he definitely wasn't reading his keys. He wasn't playing. I mean, he was playing fast, but when you're taking bad angles, I mean, I saw one play where his eyes were glued inside, and instead of beelining and taking an angle to get to get the tackle, he bowed down to now where he's he, he's trailing the guy. So, I mean, it's just so much simple bad football that was going on in the first half. It's hard to believe that this is the defense of a number 10 ranked team. I mean, I mean, I said in the beginning, like, I don't think that we're going to have a type of defense that's going to go out and shut people down. But I was expecting more of what I saw in the second half. I mean, people being more aggressive. And and that's why I smile when you said about the, the, the three-man line and the eight deep. I made a note when I was rewatching the game that this is it's absolutely terrible. I mean, that that's not the brand of football that we've been playing in Carolina. I mean, we're talking about all the blitzes and everything that um that Coach Bateman wants to do, but we didn't see any of that in the first half. It was very passive football. In the second half, we started to make things happen, got a couple tackles, flaws, pressure on the quarterback. You notice more people around the line of scrimmage, whether we're, whether we're blitzing or not. I mean, the, the, the thing about our defense is that we have people coming from angles that you don't expect them to blitz from. Well, if you have three people up on the line of scrimmage and we're not crowding line like we usually do, it's easy for a quarterback to sit back there and read or OC to come back there and check off into something else. So I do think that it was a mix of us not playing disciplined football, not playing technique football, and some of our calls being kind of passive because I think we were reading our own headlines and thinking that we had the talent and had the personnel there to create pressure and create havoc and disruption for the offensive line and for the offense in general without having to run those exotic blitzes. But I do think that once you saw that some of those blitzes come in and people coming from different angles, we were a lot more successful in the second half. I mean, we gave up 200 yards in the first half or on pace to really give up about 500, a hundred and something out of the first quarter. I mean, there's not much you can really say to find positive out of that, but it was like a tale of two halves, which actually made me, made me more mad because it's like, I would rather us go through and just play like trash the whole game because then, okay, maybe we aren't that good. But the fact to know that we are that good and we can play that brand of football and we can hang with the big dogs, it just makes the first half more disappointing and kind of make me have a disheartened look at this defense. I mean, I really don't know what we're going to do. And I think it starts up front with the, with the type of bodies that we have and the type of talent that we have. There's no reason why we shouldn't have three big guys down. I mean, and we, we need guys like Dez Evans and Taman Fox and Tyrone Hopper and Chris Collins, like all those guys outside doing what they do best. We need those big bodies in there controlling the line of scrimmage. And once we did do that, we started to control the line of scrimmage more. Yeah, we gave up some big plays in the second half, but I still think we did a better overall job of controlling the line of scrimmage um, and just playing more aggressive brand of football. Yeah, I was really surprised with, somebody like Eugene Asante's performance, who I know, according to Pro Football Focus, he did, he did not grade out well. And when you talk about Eugene Asante, like the first thing all the coaches always say is like he plays with great instincts. And I think on Friday, kind of like you said, he, he was playing a bit slower where it was like he was seeing the ball and then going to the ball instead of letting, you know, the game kind of come to him. But EJ, you, you mentioned the uh, the quarterback scramble as well. When you're working as a pass rusher like Des Evans, how do you 
play with that aggression, trying to beat the offensive lineman, yet at the same time, be conscious enough of the fact you can't get too far upfield or else you're just opening up that, that wide open lane for that quarterback scramble. It's tough. I mean, it's a nightmare. I mean, and it kind of the crazy thing, it, go, it goes back to probably the most mobile quarterback we ever had to plan for in my playing days, really, which was Tyrod Taylor. I mean, and it's kind of scary haunting that this is another Virginia Tech quarterback that can run. But it's I mean, you, you still have to be aggressive. You just have to find more ways to be aggressive. So what we did was was kind of what we called a mush rush. So we kind of I mean, we were just trying to get people back in the quarterback's face. I mean, most of the time you're mobile quarterbacks aren't going to be the tallest guys in the world so if you can stand those offensive linemen up and control them I mean that's going to be their best way to get a rush it's almost from a defensive lineman and defensive alignment and offensive line understand it's almost like you have to pass rush almost like a, a three four two gap defensive lineman playing the ball you need to be able to control the line of scrimmage and be able to, to to snatch one way or the other because there's no telling where that quarterback's going to come under if you start to commit a spy then you're, you're weaker in coverage if you start to run games well we haven't proven, really proven that we can execute on those games. So it may be a bigger gash. And I honestly saw where we tried to have some movement up front and, um, and Burmeister was able to have some success, but it's, it's just a discipline must rush. It's more physicality than speed. I mean, you have to have athletes out there that can come off their blocks and chase these quarterbacks down. But in the day we need to constrict the pocket. I mean, the defense the defensive ends position is to squeeze the pockets from the sides. The defensive tackles position is to get into his face. So if we're doing that and we're gap style as opposed to just trying to run by the guy, I think that's the easiest way to try to contain that quarterback. But then again, you have to have the discipline to be able to do that. That even if I'm in the position to just run by this tackle, I know that I have to be at least in a football position when I get to this quarterback, which is really unnatural because we don't get to touch the quarterback as often as we would like. So we try to run through them, but it's just a different situation when you're playing against some of these type of athletes, um, especially some of the ones that we're going to see in the ACC for the rest of the season. So it, it's tough, man. It, 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 there are a lot of different things you could do, but I don't think there's one simple answer, but I mean, we, I don't think we've tried any over the last few seasons because we can't stop a mobile quarterback. Yeah. They, the, the mobile quarterbacks from Virginia tech have, have long killed Carolina Tyrod Taylor, uh, Quincy Patterson, Hendon Hooker, add add Braxton. I mean the Bray mobile Mike's the motor, the motor, the mobile quarterbacks have long killed Jay Bateman since we've been in the ACC. Yeah, Braxton Burmeister is just the mm-hmm. latest in the list. Thank thankfully Carolina never had to play Michael Vick because it it probably wouldn't have went well for uh, that that VT Carolina matchup. But Mike, getting back to you from an offensive standpoint, the blame for this game we talked about the offensive line, but this the blame goes top to bottom. Coaches had an extremely hard time adjusting to what Virginia Tech was doing. I think we saw it with the RPOs where Virginia Tech was just sitting on that glance route and it was causing Sam Howell to have to hold on to the ball. And then you, you get the offensive line running up the field and you that's where those penalties were kind of coming from, where it's not really the offensive line's fault. Um, mentioned the offensive line. The playmakers, for the most part, outside of Josh Downs, had a tough night. Sam Howell was uncharacteristically off floor is yours did any of those problems surprise you more than than another what surprised me was how many design quarterback runs we didn't have and when we saw how aggressive they started getting on defense and we saw how much pressure they were getting in through their blitz packages it's surprising to me that we didn't try to gash that a little bit with some quarterback runs and slow that down because we weren't really running the ball well from the traditional 
in, in the traditional run game. And one thing that we did do well in the Orange Bowl was there were a lot of quarterback runs, design quarterback runs, scrambles, quarterback run options, that sort of thing that, you know, really, really benefited us. And Sam Howell is athletic enough and fast enough, which we saw when he did get out of the pocket. He did try to make things happen. I mean, he was clipping off seven, eight, nine runs every time he, he took off. I mean, or seven, eight, nine yards every time he took off. So this is, this is something that should be a staple of our offense while we get this receiving core comfortable and while we get Sam comfortable with this receiving core. Also, while we work out and break in this new running game because we don't have Javante Williams and Michael Carter to make this offensive line look right whenever they disengage from one of their single blocks. So one, one of their one-on-one blocks. And I saw this a few times, right? We disengage where the defensive lineman breaks away and sheds the block at the last second. Last year, you'd see Javante Williams either run through a guy or you'd see Michael Carter, Javante Williams, set that block up and make the offensive line look right, right? So what we've been doing is we were doing a good job of getting movement on some of these single blocks on our inside zone and whatnot. And we'd get some good movement. We'd get, you know, we'd get two or three yards of physical movement. And then defensive linemen would disengage with the offensive lineman or shed the block late and he'd shed to the outside and our running backs would just keep going to the outside. And now we've got a three yard gain. Whereas Michael Carter, Javante Williams would set that up, cut back inside. we got a six or seven yard gain, or maybe we've, you know, we break it. That's what happened last year when we had running backs that could make the offensive line. It could make their blockers look right all the time. We don't have that. We can have that. We have enough experience back there, Tennessee transfer and some other kids have had some snaps and some talent that's back there. I think we can make that happen this year through committee. Absolutely. But it's going to take a few games. It's going to take some time. And the way you take pressure off of that, okay, the way you give them the opportunity to break some of those is by putting the defense on their heels in the run game. And the way you can put them on their heels in the run game is if you use your quarterback, if you use your asset back there as a member of, as a participating member of the run game and get him out there and start breaking things open. Now I understand the you know, the protectionist attitude towards Sam a little bit, he's, you know, potential Heisman candidate. And as you know, Sam goes, the offense is going to go and he's no good to us if he's on the sideline in a boot or something. I get that. So you don't want to risk him too much, but as you see their blitz packages getting home and as you see their basic twist packages getting home on our offensive line and in our, in our, in our pass protection schemes, I was surprised to see us not take advantage of that more by turning the quarterback into an 11th participant in the offense as a ball carrier and giving him 10 blockers in front of him, as opposed to the typical, you know, mathematical situation, which is where you have a quarterback who hands the ball off and they have nine blockers on 11 defenders or 10 blockers on 11 or yeah, nine blockers on 11 defenders with a ball carrier being the 10th and the quarterback doing nothing. Okay. As opposed to quarterback design run 10 blockers on 11 defenders with the quarterback holding the ball. Okay, it's a numbers game. I was surprised to see us not take advantage of that a little more uh, when we saw our when we saw our pass protection breaking down, or even the blitzes getting home in the run game and blowing up our designed run game. Um, so I'd like to see a little more of that. We don't necessarily need it against Georgia State, I would hope, but as we get deeper into the season and as we get deeper into the schedule, I, I think that's going to be something that's going to be important because. You know, we're going to need Sam to bail us out with his legs as much as we're going to need him to bail us out with his arms sometimes. Yeah, I wonder when you're looking at this Carolina offense, how many of those design handoffs are read options where Howell does have the option to pull it if, if he does want. Because I was talking to an NFL scout and 
like the the biggest criticism on Howell for the next level is is that decision making where he's he's better in Phil Longo's offense when it's kind of like this is your first read this is where you're going to go with the ball and not being able to kind of go through a defense and work through your progressions I think we saw that in the RPO that's a problem it is a huge problem huge problem and I think we saw that kind of on full display in Blacksburg where you know he he really struggled in the RPOs to where if if he gets his first option taken away the entire play kind of breaks down he looked uncomfortable all night made a lot of bad decisions but with that being said receivers the tight ends they did they did him no favors he had to throw into a bunch of tight windows they struggled well, Garrett, on- Garrett, Garrett Walston's 30 years old he's got to be better and he knows that Struggle, he, yeah. he, he does he knows that and he's and he's a good player and he'll and he'll be a and he came up big for us last season in a lot of big situations yeah. including as a blocker yeah um and and i will say that you know a lot of people gave garrett walston a lot of grief online and they probably and they and he and some of it was deserved i mean he, he he earned some of that grief but what i will say is that is a guy who is he is a he's a 60 year senior now right he came back yep. he's a he's a super super duper senior not just super senior he's a super duper senior um he knows the offense he knows sam he knows his responsibilities and he's a guy who is typically dependable. So yeah. you know, don't, don't turn your back on Garrett Walston. He had a bad game. Everybody has bad games. I think he's going to be a guy, assuming they, sh- they the, co- the coaching staff continues to show confidence in him and goes to him in future weeks. I think he's going to be a guy that's, if you're using this first game as your impression of him and as your measuring stick, I think he's going to surprise a lot of people. It's not going to surprise me if he's successful this year, because I think he's a good player. Um, He's not going to blow the lid off of a defense. Um, he's not Jermichael Finley, a tight end, but he can certainly be an impact player when we need him. Uh, and if nothing else, he can be a clutch, um, a clutch player when we need him to be. So, you know, he, he, he needed to be better against Tech. He wasn't. There were yeah. some missed opportunities there. Sam sailed some throws to him and to some other receivers, so it's on Sam too. Yeah. Um, I think all around it was, like EJ has said, I was surprised to see a lot of the experience we have struggle the way that they did um i did not expect to see that yeah waltz waltzon is a an interesting point like you're like you're bringing up because you could either see it go two ways one where he turns it around and he he kind of gets it figured out and he's a big part of this carolina offense or carolina continues to not get that much production out of the tight end position and you start looking at the the younger guys like a guy like Bryson Nesbitt who's six six can can run all over the field he's kind of that that new prototype of tight ends where you're looking at guys like uh, Darren Waller in the in uh, on the Oakland Raiders and Travis mm-hmm. Kelsey that that new wave of tight ends where you're like that guy is just a freak athlete so I could see it going either way but you're you're hoping for somebody who is a six senior who decided to come back to Carolina and give the program everything they have that it does work out for somebody like Walton but you know it goes beyond him the, the wide receivers they had false starts they had the drops the the ball ripped out of Justin Olsen's hand for the interception um, they almost got DJ Jones killed on one of those blocking plays whiffing on those blocks seeing we're seeing what somebody like Bo Corrales could do for this offense yeah. where he opens up the middle of the field and outside with his frame and with blocking it was an offense it they the offense just had no identity Friday night and 
it turned into Sam Howell feeling like he had to do it all himself, which is why I think he does deserve more leeway for his struggling when the outcome of the game entirely falls on his shoulder. Yeah. Um, EJ, you had mentioned it, Carolina, they brought their D game to Blacksburg, still went into the last possession of the game with a chance to either tie or take the lead because of the defensive turnaround. The defense kept them in this game. What changed after halftime, in your opinion, that the defense was able to keep them in this game? Their attitude. Um, I almost said a word um, that they probably wouldn't play well with, with some of our more conservative viewers, but we just played like a football team and looked like we wanted to be there as opposed to a team that's like we're number 10. They're going to roll over for us because they're not ranked. I mean, you saw more, you saw um, people playing more aggressively. You saw more movement on the defensive line, whether it be them shifting from where their initial positions were or whether them actually making a gap movement, a long stick or a B gap dive or a fullback, where we used to call it, where we'd be the line in the six and shoot the C gap. Um, and you honestly just saw more blitzes and more pressures in general. I think that the second half is more reflective of the style of football that our defense is built for and, um, and, and what Coach Bateman is really used to calling. That really looked more like what I was expecting to see, the exotic – the, well, people call them exotic. I mean, for people who know football, you know, they're just sending the guy. I mean, it's the same blitz. It's just somebody else is the, the penetrator. But there was more of those things. There was more here with a lot of these guys getting that so-called experience last year in the Orange Bowl and, and covering for injuries. We saw a lot more than the second half, and I think that empowered the, the players and allowed them to play a lot more aggressively. I don't understand how you can't come out on a Friday night game in Blacksburg with 60,000 fans there after playing in front of empty stadiums and not be absolutely jacked up and ready to play and just come over and let an offensive lineman, an offensive line who, I mean, yeah, they're, they're good. They're decent. They're D1 players, but I don't think that they had any business playing in that stadium. I just wish that play, play, playing the, as well as they get, did against our, our defensive line. I think that we need more guys to have the same attitude as Ray Vahasic. I mean, that, that guy's super consistent. He's not going to flash or show on your stat line with a bunch of tackles or a bunch of sacks, but every time you look at him, if, 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 even if you're talking to somebody and it was like, well, what's it look like for a defensive lineman to play a play almost perfectly? In the next play, if Ray Vahasic is on the field, you have a good example of that. We saw a lot of that from Ritzy. I mean, and for a young guy, I think he played exceptional well I mean he he's not a, a guy that, that had a bunch of stats either but he played great football he played aggressive football he played strong he was in control of his gap and I think he made it possible for a lot of other guys to make plays so I don't know what happened in the second half maybe these guys uh moxie or balls or maybe they came in on a late shipment and they didn't get there until halftime because that's exactly <laughs> what it seems like. I'm taking the gloves off. Like that's exactly what it seems like. Like they, they, they just look like a team that didn't want to play. And then the second half, it was a completely different story. So that, and that's what I meant earlier. Like the watching that second half of football made me even more pissed about the way they came out and laid down for Virginia tech in the first half. Like I, and, and I just don't understand it. It's first game of the season. We're not playing, uh, uh, a division two or FC or whatever they call well, it. This, we this, playing this, a lower this isn't a scrimmage in training camp. Like you're, you're strapping exactly. up against other dudes. Like exactly. and tech, tech was more excited to strap it up against another team than we were. 
They yeah. really were. Yeah. They really were. And I, I don't I don't know if it's it's because these guys don't look at Virginia Tech the way we did when we were there. They don't remember the Michael Vicks and how dominant the Virginia Tech was when they came in the ACC. But for us, even growing up watching watching Michael Vick, we want to play in Lane Stadium. So we also want to play our best because if you're playing in Lane Stadium, more than likely it's going to be a nationally televised game. Mm-hmm. I don't. We didn't look like a number ten ranked defense. We didn't look like a top twenty five ranked defense in that first half. And the fact that we did look like one in the second half lets me know that we aren't a top 25 defense because we would have played way more consistent than we did yeah Mm -hmm. and and you mentioned Vahasek deserves props Ritzy deserves props in his first game I think somebody like Jaquarius Conley deserves a lot of props pro pro football focus kid kid was a missile again I mean he he had some bad angles he had some missed tackles but that kid was a missile just like he was in the in the bowl game yeah yeah. pro, pro football focus gave him three missed tackles but I mean he looks different out there than than the majority yeah. of Carolina's defense. Like, n- no offense to the Carolina's defense, but Jaquarius Conley looks like a a a player who should be on like Georgia's defense or an Alabama defense. Yeah. He looks like a different breed along that that defense where he's flying, he's making plays, he's got the effort, and he. I know he missed a couple tackles, took a couple bad angles, but for the most mm-hmm. part, when Jaquarius Conley's one on one in open field, which is a extremely hard situation for how shifty some of these guys are you're expecting him to get guys on the ground more often than not and that's a lot better than you could say for a, a well, large part of the defense. look man we got we got guys on defense that look like they look the part they mm-hmm. look like they can be playing for any of those programs i mean let, let's let's here, here's here's a comparison to ej will appreciate okay asante who does he remind you of ej guy we played with he is, I was he about is, to say his brother because we have. I just realized that he was Larry Asante's <laughs> brother this weekend. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, he's he is. He reminds me of Rennie Curran, and if you really want to go back a little further, uh, Buster Douglas from Florida State. Yeah, he could be a yeah. Buster Douglas type from a from a physical stature standpoint. That's why I think of Rennie and Buster Douglas. Right, they're smaller guys, but they were. I mean, they were bowling balls. They were missiles. They were around the ball every single you know every single play. They were difference makers, and they were fast. Okay, Rennie, Rennie was Rennie was an absolute. I mean, he was he was muscle hamster before there was muscle hamster. Okay, Rennie was a ball oh, yeah, player. Yeah. And at, at Georgia, oh, yeah. we know he was, and in the pro, and the, even in the pros, right? The limited exposure he got mm-hmm. in the pros, Rennie was a ball player. Asante can be that guy. Okay, he can be a Rennie Curran. He can be a Buster Douglas. But he's got to show it. He's got to have more consistency. He's got to. He's and there's and there's so many guys across that defense where they have that ability. Okay, Des Evans. Mm-hmm. Des Evans should be a sack machine. I mean, I don't th- – this kid, he's – at the point that that kid ever turns it on, he's going to have a George Selvey kind of year. Remember, all folks remember George oh, yeah. Selvey back when, back when mm-hmm. USF was getting all the Miami rejects, okay? The kids who couldn't make it at Miami would go to USF, and USF had the number two team in the country. Folks remember that. They had Jason Pierre-Paul, and they had George Selvey on the other side. Okay, that team was nasty. And George Selby was the was was the best defensive end in the country his senior year. And Des Evans can be that guy. He has the frame. He has the ability. Okay, and he has he has the opportunity in this defense based on where he's lined up in the scheme we run to be an absolute animal. And we've got multiple guys across that front that can be like that, that can be that type of player. 
I think in the second half, uh, speaking of Des Evans, I think it was a perfect example of that. I mean, the guys lined up. I mean, this is back when we're actually putting three down linemen and the two linebackers standing up where he played the play perfectly. I mean, I, he couldn't have played any better. He came in. He spilled the blocker that was on the edge for him. He made the tackle for loss. And and it, it was just a great play. But it's like, why isn't this guy flashing more? But I saw Des Aquarius Scott. I saw one. I saw one break up the sideline. I don't know if you saw this. I saw I saw one break up the sideline. Des was in on it. Okay, there was a mm-hmm. there was a scrum. Kid breaks it outside up the sideline. Des chased the play down to mm-hmm. the sideline and made the tackle 10, 12 yards downfield on the sideline. It went for a first down. But Des, as a defensive end, stand up linebacker, whatever you want to call him, was in on that play. After being in on it at the beginning, he also finished mm-hmm. the play. And that type of effort, I remember seeing. I was like, God dang, there goes Des Evans, like. Like that type of effort, okay, and that type of production, every single play could turn this kid into an All American, and we've got multiple players who mm-hmm. do that. Sorry, go ahead. I know mm-hmm. you're about to mention somebody. <laughs> oh yeah, I was just talking about Jaquarius Conley. Just kind yeah. of doing comparisons. The way he played Friday, I mean Friday night was more. It was kind of reminiscent of uh, Teran Teran Matthew. He really looked like mm. a honey badger type player because even in the beginning where he missed that tackle. He was in the right position, but where he messed up is that he turned his back to the guy. So by the time he turned around to try to tackle him, he was already disoriented. Then you have where he you, you had a play where he missed the tackle. But then you have that play on Burmeister, who's this guy who's doing all this UFC training and yada, yada, yada. Open the, the most beautiful open field tackle I've seen in a very long time. And then you want to talk about the fumble recovery, that the athletic interception that he made. Like, I really think this kid is going to be a, a Teran Matthew type player for yeah. us in the kind of I, I like to call it the, the secondary middle of the defense because I mean it's hard. He like the guys like Cam Chancellor and and um Lord how am I forgetting my guy that went to Ole Miss, Eric Berry, the yeah. guys like that who can it, and Earl Thomas is the guy who can just cover the field, who can play the pass just as well as they do the run. I think that's what Jaquarius Conley is going to be for us. He was really the most surprising spot for me on the defense that I otherwise, other than that, I think players play below their abilities. But I think that he played above his ability, and maybe that's just his ability now because, I mean, he's really having some nice carryover from the last from last season. Yeah, not many people are making that interception, but Mac Brown said it best where this team has to make sure this game doesn't beat them twice. They'll try to reset and rebound. Home opener Saturday against Georgia State, 7.30 kickoff in Keenan Stadium. EJ Wilson, Mike Ingersoll will be back to break it down for Inside Carolina on Monday. Guys, just want to say thank you. This was this was kind of therapeutic for me, that, yeah. that drive home from Blacksburg. It, it, was, it was rough, so just wanted to say thanks. Yeah. Next time, phone a friend, man. Don't take that ride that long by yourself, man. It's, it's dangerous to be in that level of wallowing and you're, you're driving uh, through the mountains and everything. By, by the time I finished the post game and the walking to my car and trying to get something to eat, it was about 1.30. Nobody was picking up that call. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. 
Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Paramount Plus and the National Park Foundation present A Mountain of Zen. Are you still listening? Good. Take a deep breath. You needed a break. This Earth Week, you can live stream seven national parks for seven days on Paramount Plus. So, yes, you can literally stream a stream. Paramount Plus, official streaming partner of the National Park Foundation.